Hey, Faye, it's Creog season again, um, and so we need to help residents figure out the best way to study aside from just listening to the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that um, we did when we were residents was to look at the OBG project, which can give you really quick updates on the most up-to-date practice guidelines, as well as create your own library where you can go back to those guidelines um, that you specifically like. Head on over to our website, creogsovercoffee.com, and check out the sidebar. Chief residents, you can get OBG first, the premium product, absolutely free for your chief year. That'll cover you for creogs as well as your board studying. And residents, you can also benefit from the resident core curriculum, absolutely free. Again, head over to our website, creogsovercoffee.com, check out the sidebar. Happy studying. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Creogs over, over Coffee. Today, we're going to dive into an essential episode for the OBGYN. We are going to be talking about the BRCA gene and mutation and what we need to know as generalists. So, Nick, what are our learning objectives for today? So we'll discuss specific malignancy risks associated with BRCA or BRCA mutations. Um, we'll then review personal and family history characteristics that should prompt a referral to genetics to consider testing for BRCA mutations. Um, and then finally, we'll talk about the appropriate surveillance, medical, and surgical therapies um, to help reduce risk of breast and ovarian cancer in patients with BRCA mutations. Is this is what you're going to be talking about, thinking about, and counseling about as an OBGYN seeing these patients. So Faye, we've certainly heard the word BRCA before, um, but what are we talking about exactly with BRCA? So it's important to know that certain germline mutations predispose patients to a heritably higher risk of breast and ovarian cancer. In particular, you have probably heard of BRCA1 and BRCA2, and others that you may or may not have heard of include things like the Lynch syndrome genes. So these are things like MSH2, MLH1, MSH6, PMS2, uh, P10. There's also TP53, which is Lee from any syndrome, and also puts Jaeger syndrome, which is STK11, just to name a few. However, for today specifically, we're going to spend today focusing on BRCA. So in terms of like risk for BRCA itself, the estimates of carrier frequency ranges anywhere from 1 out of 300 to 1 out of 800 for either genes. BRCA1 specifically is found on chromosome 17 and BRCA2 is found on chromosome 13. Just something to remember because it seems like these are things that they always test on uh, yeah. on the CREOGs. Both are tumor suppressor genes that function in the DNA repair process. The inherited mutation is non-functional or defective in some way, um, but patients usually have a second functional copy. However, if the second allele becomes non-functional due to somatic mutation, so you have this like knockout process, cancer can develop. So this two-hit hypothesis of tumor suppressor genes is what we're talking about here. Nick, um, talk to me a little bit about the actual risks that come with BRCA? Like, why are we so concerned about the risks? Yeah. So a while ago, we did a podcast with Dr. Edmondson about breast cancer screening. Um, and we learned then that the risk of breast cancer in someone who is just at average risk by age 70 is about 12% or one in eight patients. Um, in someone who has BRCA1 or BRCA2, 
by age 70, their risk is estimated to be 45 to 85%. So flip a coin or even worse, um, almost a guarantee of breast cancer by age 70. Um, BRCA1, BRCA2 patients also are more likely to be of triple negative breast cancer pathology. Again, remember, triple negative refers to negative receptors for estrogen, progesterone, and HER2. And these tend to be particularly um, significant risks for progression um, and pathogenicity of breast cancer. There's also risk of ovarian, fallopian tube, or primary peritoneal cancer. In BRCA1, that risk is estimated to be 39 to 46% by age 70, and in BRCA2 is associated to be 10 to 27% by age 70. Both genes carry an increased risk of high-grade serous or endometrioid phenotypes, um, which again can be more significant with respect to ovarian cancer. BRCA1 and 2 is also associated with other cancers as well, and it's not just patients with female reproductive organs that end up with the short end of the stick here. It's also associated with prostate cancer, pancreatic cancer, uterine cancers, and melanoma. Um, so these are all big, big considerations for the patients with BRCA beyond just the OBGYN office. I think one of the bigger questions about BRCA, Faye, um, is not necessarily when you know that you have a patient with BRCA in front of you, but it's the patient who comes to you that says, my aunt or my sister or my mother got diagnosed with breast cancer. Do I need to get tested for BRCA? Yeah, so um, there's a whole long list of patients who should see genetics and have genetic testing. So we won't list all of them for you. But some of the things to be aware of, if your patient has a new cancer, um, we recommend genetics if, for example, they have um, ovarian epithelial cancers, if they have breast cancer at age 45 or less, um, if they personally have breast cancer with a close relative that had breast cancer that is less than 50, um, breast cancer with two or more relatives that are also affected by breast cancer, breast cancer with two or more close relatives with other things like pancreatic cancer, um, prostate cancer, things like that. Also, if the patient has two breast cancer primaries, um, one of which is diagnosed under the age of 50, triple negative breast cancer under the age of 60, breast cancer in Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry at any age, or even things like pancreatic cancer and have two or more close relatives with the breast, ovarian, pancreatic, or aggressive prostate cancer. If your patient doesn't have a new cancer, we still recommend genetics based on a history. If they have a first degree or several close relatives that meet the above criteria, if they have a close relative that is a known carrier for BRCA1 or BRCA2, and if they have a close relative with male breast cancer. If you're not sure, but that history seems high risk, you can always refer a patient to cancer genetics to discuss, and it's always worthwhile to review the history um, and to really talk to those um, genetic specialists about uh, what are the risks to that patient themselves and um, what to expect when they're actually getting testing. As you're taking a family history, it also bears special mention that both maternal and paternal histories are important. So specifically, um, you can find an association with things like male breast cancer, prostate cancer, and melanoma. So don't just ask about uh, the women in their family. Make sure to also ask the paternal histories. 
So one of the things that has always confused me, Nick, is this genetic testing, right? Because I think there's all these possible outcomes, and if it just if it confuses me, then I'm sure it's also going to confuse patients. So what Absolutely. are some of the things that we should counsel our patients about? So there's a couple of different outcomes of genetic testing. It's not just simply you have it or you don't have it. Um, the first, though, that we'll talk about is very simple, a true positive, and that's when a pathogenic BRCA variant is identified for the patient. A true negative is that when no pathogenic variant is identified, specifically in someone who has a known BRCA variant in the family, and that's really the only way that you can get a true negative. An uninformative negative means that no pathogenic variant is identified, but the negative value of that is not truly informative because either other family members are not tested, the family carries a variant but it wasn't detected because of certain test limitations, a family member carries a high-risk mutation in another gene, or there's a true negative and it's no high-risk mutation but it's just not known. So again, really the family history is super important to be able to get the more assuring diagnosis of the true negative. A variant of uncertain significance is one that's really confusing that also comes up, but shortened as VUS. This is when an abnormality is detected in the gene, but it's unknown whether the variant is associated with increased cancer risk just because there's not a lot of data about that. So again, the family history here can probably inform the geneticist to some degree over whether that VUS is suspicious or not. Patients should be informed about the possible outcomes of testing before they undergo the test so they're aware of potential limitations and the importance of that family history and family testing if it's indicated. Unintended consequences of testing, too, have to be taken into consideration. Again, patients may have undue levels of anxiety or stress. There may be family dynamics issues in play regarding the need for disclosure to other family members. And so really, your patient should have a balanced and nuanced discussion with geneticists as well as you if you're the ordering provider to talk about what may be on the other side of the test. There are also multi-gene panels that exist um, that look for mutations beyond BRCA, and if the family history is concerning for some of these multi-gene panels, so for instance, as we mentioned earlier, like the P10 or the Lee-Fraumeni syndrome or those things we mentioned at the top of the podcast, geneticists can really point you in a good fashion to say, oh, this is the highest yield thing that we should do for this particular mm -hmm. patient's scenario. All right, so Faye, I guess it kind of probably depends a little bit on your practice, whether you're actually doing the testing for BRCA1 and BRCA2 and how much of the primary screening for gene mutations. But I think all of us in obstetrics and gynecology will eventually encounter a patient with one of these mutations. So what things do we need to keep in mind regarding screening and treatment um, with the OBGYN? Yeah, so let's start off with screening first. Um, so we'll break this down into breast and ovarian. So in a patient who has a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation for breast cancer screening, in a patient who is age 25 to 29, and yes, you actually need to start screening at age 25, um, you can do clinical breast exams every 6 to 12 months and an annual screen, preferably by MRI with contrast. Um, we try to avoid ionizing radiation at this younger age as this may increase the risk of cancer. And also, um, in patients who are younger, there's also some concern for dense breasts, and so potentially mammography may not be as helpful. In patients that are 30 plus, these patients should get an annual breast mammography 
as well as MRI. And generally, we alternate this so that we get um, one you know, at month one and the second at month six, for example. And we'll also continue with clinical breast exams every six to 12 months. In terms of ovarian cancer screening, unfortunately, there's not great ovarian cancer screening methods that we have right now. So transvaginal ultrasound and CA125 monitoring routinely is not recommended. However, these patients could be considered for short-term surveillance around the age of 30 to 35 until patients undergo risk-reducing BSOs, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And this is the only proven intervention to actually reduce ovarian cancer mortality in these patients. What about some medical uh, management of these patients, Nick? Yeah. So from a medical perspective, again, let's talk about breast cancer first. Um, Tamoxifen and raloxifene are the two drugs. They're SERMs or selective estrogen receptor modulators that you may hear about as being considered for breast cancer risk reduction. These can be considered in patients age 35 and older who are not planning on pregnancy or not planning on prophylactic mastectomy. Tamoxifen is used in premenopausal and in postmenopausal women and can help reduce the risk of breast cancer by up to 62% in BRCA2 carriers, um, but hasn't been found to reduce risk of cancer in BRCA1 carriers. This likely reflects the fact that BRCA1 carriers tend to have a much higher incidence of triple negative breast cancer, so tamoxifen as a serum may not help that much. Raloxifene has been found to be effective in reducing invasive breast cancer in postmenopausal women at increased risk, though it hasn't been evaluated specifically in BRCA carriers. It's really only been evaluated in sort of a overall higher risk population that did include some BRCA carriers. There's been one head-to-head trial of tamoxifen versus raloxifene in this, again, kind of more diverse group of elevated risk, and tamoxifen may have more significant risk reduction based on that trial. Important to remember the side effects of SERMs, which is something that you may come into contact with, particularly for these patients. The way these things work basically is that they put you into like a menopausal type of state um, by modifying the estrogen receptors and modifying that feedback. So essentially you get menopausal symptoms. You're getting vasomotor symptoms. You're getting vaginal symptoms of dryness, itching, dyspareunia. But kind of paradoxically, because of the selective estrogen effect, you're also increasing the risk of venous thromboembolism on these medications. So you really have to be aware of that and be concerned for increased risk of VTE. Tamoxifen additionally has an associated concern for endometrial hyperplasia as well. While again, tamoxifen is preferred in premenopausal patients, consider the risk of endometrial hyperplasia in patients who have risk factors for EIN. Raloxifene has the other significant side effects beyond these of leg cramps. I haven't heard of that one. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, but it is a big associated side effect with raloxifene mentioned in the practice bulletin. It doesn't act on the endometrium, so again, it is preferred in the postmenopausal patient and can be considered in patients with significant risk factors otherwise. It's also important to remember, too, that raloxifene is helpful for bone health, too, um, and so again, is a good choice in postmenopausal patients. Aromatase inhibitors are another medication class that has been used for breast cancer risk reduction, and there have been two trials that have shown reduction in breast cancer risk in postmenopausal individuals and could be considered as an alternative if there was a contraindication to SERMs. It's not used in premenopausal women um, because it actually ends up stimulating ovarian function in that case. As you might recall, letrozole can be used for ovulation induction, um, so we don't use it in premenopausal patients. In ovarian cancer, for risk reduction with medical therapy, 
The bulletin actually mentions that combined hormonal contraceptives are reasonable to use for cancer prophylaxis until patients undergo that risk-reducing BSL. The reduction of ovarian cancer risk is estimated with OCPs at 33 to 80% for BRCA1 and 58 to 63% for BRCA2. There also hasn't been any associated increased risk of breast cancer in those with BRCA mutations using OCPs, so again, you can reassure your patients that exposure to these hormones is not going to change their risk. All right, Faye, we've talked about screening, we've talked about medical therapies, but I think the big one and the one that patients often will come straight to us with questions about are the surgical therapies. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll break this down again into breast and ovarian. So for breast, um, it's really the bilateral mastectomy, and this can be offered to any patient with BRCA mutations. And this reduces their risk of breast cancer by 85 to 100% depending on the procedure type. However, this is a big surgery and should be referred to a breast surgeon to discuss the risks of surgery in the short term, things like surgical issues like um, hematomas, flap issues, infection, and also long-term issues, pain, numbness, swelling, and breast hardness. 70 plus percent of patients report satisfaction with their choice to undergo a bilateral mastectomy at a follow-up of 14.5 years. But it is important to consider patients that you know their breasts can be a big part of their um, identity as well as their uh, sexual identity. So it's definitely something that you need to talk to your patients about. Um, in terms of ovarian, the surgery that we usually talk about is a bilateral salpingo-oophrectomy or the BSO. It's the most effective option for risk reduction and should be considered uh, by age 35 to 40 for BRCA1 patients and between 40 to 45 for BRCA2 patients if they're done with um, having children. This can be individualized based on the patient's family history, plans for childbearing, and also it's worth discussion of fertility preservation with oocy or embryo cryopreservation um, because, you know, these patients overall are still pretty young and may be considering future fertility. Salpingectomy alone is not recommended at this time. However, the practice bulletin does note that salpingectomy followed by future oophrectomy could be reasonable to consider for some patients who desire this option. In terms of how to perform a risk-reducing BSO, this is actually something that the practice bulletin spends a lot of time on, and I do think it's important for us to know. So first, um, upon entry into the abdomen, you should perform a survey. So visualize your peritoneal surfaces for any obvious disease and perform pelvic washings. You should inspect things like the diaphragm, liver, omentum, bowel, pericolic gutters, appendix, ovaries, fallopian tubes, uterus, uh, bladder, cul-de-sac, biopsy, any abnormal areas. Um, because again, these patients are at higher risk for having ovarian cancer. And so even if they're young when you're performing your BSO, they may already have ovarian cancer that just hasn't been detected. All tissue from the ovaries and the fallopian tubes need to be removed. And you actually have to ligate the IP two centimeters proximal to the end of identifiable ovarian tissue. And beware of your ureter because, again, that ureter crosses very closely to uh, where that IP is. If a hysterectomy is not performed, tubes should be divided at insertion to cornua and the ovary removed from the ureter-ovarian ligament as close to the uterus as possible. Frozen pathology is not necessary, as most malignancies identified from this procedure are occult. Your pathologists need to know that the patient is a BRCA carrier, though. This will prompt them to perform a complete serial sectioning of the tissue with microscopic screening rather than just representative sections typically performed for benign BSOs. Hysterectomies can be considered simultaneously, and the advantage is that it simplifies hormone therapy. You can give estrogen alone versus um, having to give estrogen and a progestin if the uterus is retained. Removal of the corneal aspect of the fallopian tube is also helpful, and it also does reduce endometrial cancer risk if the patient is genetically predisposed or is taking tamoxifen. 
Similarly, if this patient has a history of Lynch syndrome at the same time, um, it should definitely be considered to reduce that endometrial cancer risk. The disadvantages of this, of course, is that it's a bigger surgery, there's longer recovery time, and higher risk of complications from surgery. After a BSO, patients who are premenopausal are going to need hormone replacement therapy to mitigate the effects of early menopause and to help with cardiovascular health and bone protection. And remember that HRT in the Women's Health Initiative study increased the risk of breast cancer in the estrogen progesterone arm, but not in the estrogen arm alone. So given the higher rates of triple negative breast cancer in the BRCA population, HRT would not alter that course. And data suggests that HRT does not seem to reduce the protective effects of risk-reducing surgery overall. In postmenopausal patients, however, this is controversial. Other options are generally preferred to HRT for those vasomotor symptoms. Local estrogen therapy for vaginal symptoms is safe and effective in the BRCA population, so please use that. Um, and ongoing surveillance after BSO is not necessary, so no need to collect CA 125s or perform surveillance imaging. Patients, however, should report any concerning symptoms. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of this BRCA episode. So why don't we go ahead and summarize? So we started off talking about what exactly BRCA was as a germline mutation that predisposed patients to a heritably higher risk of breast and ovarian cancer. So BRCA1 and BRCA2 exist, but there are also other syndromes that fall into similar categories like the Lynch syndrome genes, P10, TP53 is the Lee Fowler-Rennie syndrome, and STK11 is Putz-Jaeger syndrome. Recall that BRCA1 is found on chromosome 17, BRCA2 is found on chromosome 13, and the carrier frequency ranges from 1 in 300 to 1 in 800 for either of these genes. Overall, the risk of breast cancer in someone with BRCA by age 70 is somewhere between 45 and 85%. The risk of ovarian cancer in BRCA1 is 39 to 46% by age 70, and for BRCA2 is 10 to 27%. BRCA1 and 2 are also associated with prostate, pancreatic, uterine, and melanomas. There are a whole list of reasons to send your patient for genetic counseling if they have a new cancer, depending on their family history, and also if they don't have a new cancer, but their family history suggests that they may be at risk for a genetic syndrome. If you're not sure, be sure to refer the patient to a cancer geneticist to discuss some of these options. And it's also important that when you're taking a family history to also take paternal history and not just maternal history. Things um, that we need to look out for in the genetic testing is to look for things like true positives, so there's an actual pathogenic BRCA variant identified, true negatives, meaning no pathogenic variant identified in someone who has a known BRCA variant in the family. However, you can also have things like an uninformative negative, meaning no pathogenic variant identified, but it's not informative because either other family members aren't tested, the family members carry, an, carry a variant, uh, families members carry a high-risk mutation on another gene, or there's actually truly no high-risk mutation. The other thing to worry about is the variant of uncertain significance, basically an abnormality detected in the BRCA gene, but it's not known if that variant is associated with increased cancer risk. Multi-gene panel testing is also possible and may be appropriate for certain patient populations. We broke down the care of the patient with BRCA1 and BRCA2 into screening, medical therapies, and surgical therapies for breast and ovarian cancer. For screening for breast cancer, the patient with BRCA1 and BRCA2 should undergo clinical breast exam every 6 to 12 months starting at age 25, and up until age 29, they also will have an annual screen, preferably by MRI with contrast. Then at age 30, you'll alternate breast mammography and MRI every six months and continue clinical breast exams every six to 12 months. 
For ovarian cancer, there's really not a good screening tool that is recommended, um, though transvaginal ultrasound and CA-125 have been studied. In terms of medical management, for breast cancer, patients um, can take tamoxifen or raloxifen, which can be considered in patients who are older than 35 and not planning on pregnancy or a prophylactic mastectomy. Um, however, it's important to counsel your patients about the side effects of CIRMs, things like vasomotor symptoms or genitourinary symptoms of menopause and an increased risk of VTE. The other option would be something like an aromatase inhibitor. However, this is only for patients who are postmenopausal. In terms of ovarian cancer, um, you can consider OCPs to use for cancer prophylaxis until the patient gets their BSO. Surgical prophylaxis for breast cancer is a bilateral mastectomy, which is very effective, but this is a very big surgery, and so patients should talk with the breast surgeons to discuss both short-term and long-term risks, as well as satisfaction in the long term. For ovarian cancer risk reduction, the standard is bilateral salpingophorectomy, which is recommended by age 35 to 40 for BRCA1 patients and 40 to 45 for BRCA2 patients, though individualized based on the patient's family history and plans for childbearing. Salpingectomy alone is not recommended, though you could consider performing a salpingectomy followed by future ovophorectomy for patients desiring that. It's important to remember how to perform a risk-reducing BSO. Remember to inspect the entire abdomen upon entry, and also it's important to make sure that you take that IP two centimeters proximal to the end of the identifiable ovarian tissue. Also remember to tell your pathologist that you are doing this as a risk-reducing BSO in a BRCA carrier so that they will perform a complete serial section of the tissue. After the BSO, patients will need HRT to mitigate effects of early menopause and help with cardiovascular health and bone protection. Remember, HRT and the WHI increased risk of breast cancer in the estrogen progesterone arm, but not in the estrogen alone arm. But given the rates of triple negative breast cancer in the BRCA population, HRT is not suspected to increase that risk, and data suggests that the protective effects of risk-reducing surgery remain in place despite HRT. Local estrogen therapy for vaginal symptoms is also safe to use, and ongoing surveillance after a BSO is not necessary unless patients report concerning symptoms. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head on over to your iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at CreagsRiverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreagsRiverCoffee. And if you want to support us, you can go onto our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CreagsRiverCoffee. We have show notes for this episode as well as all of our previous episodes and the Rosh Review Question of the Week on our website, CreagsRiverCoffee.com. And if you want to contact us, have questions for us or a correction for the show, go ahead and email us, CreagsRiverCoffee at gmail.com. 